Hello and welcome to another episode of Bailiwick Podcasts. I'm Jodie Etram and today I'll be speaking with one of the UK's top 100 female entrepreneurs, branding specialist Katie Killett. Katie was born in Jersey but is now based in London where she runs a design agency. She believes that design can drive positive social change and she hopes to make a positive difference in the world by helping charities and other socially conscious brands to improve their branding, all while using eco-friendly and sustainable processes and materials. Katie helped to revitalise the Pride events in Jersey and Guernsey in recent years by creating inclusive campaigns that focused on the original activist roots of the event, reclaiming its core values and ensuring that all voices in the local LGBTQ community were heard and represented. Katie spoke with me about her journey into the world of design, from getting her first job in a local graphic design studio to starting her own business in London. Hello Katie, it's so great to have you in today to speak to me about your work with design and about your business. So recently you got named one of the UK's top 100 female entrepreneurs, which is an incredible achievement. I just wanted to ask how did it feel when you received the news about being included in this list? Um, I, I have to say I was absolutely elated. I think anybody would be. I was shocked. I'd actually applied, um, gone through the application process last summer and forgot about it. And over Christmas, I'd been thinking, oh, I really should follow up on that. You know, what happened? And um, that day, they'd sent an email out saying, right, we're launching it on Monday, blah, blah. And it was talking away. And I realised that I'd missed the email saying I'd been accepted. (laughs) (laughs) So I had a bit of a panic. Um, But they were absolutely great. So I was over the moon. I honestly couldn't believe it. I believe you have some plans coming up for International Women's Day in relation to the award yeah so they're going to take us for a drinks reception at the house of lords i i have a bit of a background in getting involved in politics via design so the Mm -hmm. fact that i'm now actually going to the house of lords is is like a really geeky dream (laughs) come true for me because i love i love the intersection of design and politics and how we can shape and craft culture so you're a designer and a branding specialist and you work with a variety of different startup companies and brands and charities I was hoping you could just tell me a little bit more about the business that you set up yeah so well essentially Mantra is a a branding agency and we specialize in design and strategy and we um, we work mostly with purpose-driven businesses and so you know you're in the old days purpose used to be knowing what you do doing a really good job of it and telling the world all about that and that's changed in the last few years where more and more the public are expecting brands to have principles and stand up for something and try and bring about some kind of social change or be some benefit to the planet so purpose has taken on a whole new angle and it was kind of going through a process of my own positioning and branding several years ago that made me realize that all of the businesses that I was working with actually had some kind of purpose at their core so yeah so we work with um, locally we work with companies like Laser Me Mm -hmm. and Health House but we also um help um, companies like CI Travel Group. How do you sort of select the brands you work with? Do you have some sort of criteria or do you sort of like have a chat with them and see what the message and purpose of the brand is? How do you sort of identify who you want to work with? Yeah, that's a good question. And it, projects can, tend to come in two different ways. Quite often, word of mouth is a really big part of why you will win a project. Mm-hmm. But there's also, off the back end of that, a lot of work that goes into putting myself in the right place where I'm going to meet the kind of people that 
are working on the kind of projects that mm-hmm. I want to be involved with. And I do a lot of kind of networking, meeting people, just having a chat and, and learning a lot about what's happening in different industries. So when I'm back home in London, I attend lots of different climate conferences. I go to business uh, breakfast meetings for sustainable businesses. I also go to um, LGBTQ entrepreneur-led business hangouts where I get to talk to people about what we're doing with Pride, find out what's happening with their businesses, you know, and trying to spread the word for Jersey and Guernsey Pride that it's an event that people should be coming Mm -hmm. over for and also look for more partnerships in the UK to work with um, LGBTQ-led charities or business owners. And and really just kind of being a really active member of wherever you find yourself, whatever community you find yourself in. I also have a big creative hub where I work. I I find that like, if you just kind of, you, you learn so much from listening to people and learning what they're doing and uncovering there's an amazing event happening over here or there's a collective of people that like to meet up and talk about this challenge and they're looking for a way to solve that and more often than not I have copies and meetings with people purely off the back of I'm absolutely fascinated by what they're doing and and it's that kind of thing that like you know over time in you know six months 12 months down the line they'll remember you and say oh hey you know I know you did something with this person and we want something similar and can we have a talk about it so you kind of create that word of mouth before you started mantra you set up the first female-run design agency in Jersey. I Yeah, I did. I founded the first female-led design agency in Jersey uh, with my former business partner, and we used to be called Uber Studio, now it's mm-hmm. called Us Creatives, um, and that was back in 2008. We It was funny because I think at the time, perhaps... We weren't really thinking about things being sexist on like a very conscious level. Yeah. But when we went to when we went out to the media to ask if we could have some coverage for our lovely little design agency, we did make a point of saying, Oh, please don't talk about the fact that we're women because we thought that it would count against us and we thought that people wouldn't take us seriously. Um and funnily enough, the first article that came out in the JP, the editor had put the title A Female Take on Graphic Design and <laughs> with our photograph of both of us. And um, we thought, Oh no, that's like the last thing we wanted. Mm-hmm. And then and to our astonishment, lots of female business owners who we didn't know existed all came out of the woodwork and came to see us and, and actually were like, we really want to work with you because you're women. We find that when we talk about our um, products or our services, either men men that we talk to in design are not interested or we see their eyes glazing over or they perhaps don't take us seriously as business people. And actually, we also had a lot of support from, from men in, in the community and we had some male clients that came to us because they actually found it easier to work with women because there's less kind of posturing. Yeah. I think to some extent, some of the things that people perhaps perceive as sexism can actually just be that is just how men talk to each other. Mm-hmm. And when you're, you know, when you're being trying to like run a business, you're going to have to deal with a certain level of aggression, which is actually quite normal. Mm-hmm. How would you say um, female run and male run design industry sort of differ or how are they maybe similar? It's difficult to say. I think it very much depends on the individual. Yeah. But I think that when women Women work in creative industries. So in order to be a really good brand identity designer or create um, something that's really going to be effective for your customer, one of the most important skills you need is listening and empathy. And I think that women are really, really good at asking questions and listening and allowing people that space to feel comfortable and for a deep conversation to flourish. 
And when you actually can get underneath what perhaps seems like a surface issue and down into what really, really matters and have difficult conversations about, say, for instance, with Pride, I I kind of went to them with like, we have a real issue here because actually people don't think they need Pride anymore. So what are we going to do about it? Mm -hmm. And at the same time, we know that we knew that there were homophobic attacks um, increasing and the issue with um, corporate sponsorship and people thinking it become a tick box exercise and people rainbow washing and not really doing anything about it now because we had been listening and talking about it for years we were able to have a really honest conversation say look the whole brand has a problem and we actually need to almost take the brand apart and start again to reset it on a path that's actually fit for purpose for where we are now because where we were was not the representation that it had in the public realm and I think that working with women you get that level of empathy and listening and understanding that you know is, is an added bonus because that's what women traditionally do is their role Mm -hmm. you know in the community they're often the kind of the listener the empath Mm -hmm. the carer but I don't want to say that men don't do that either so (laughs) many really gifted and fantastic and emphatic men out there too before you set up Uber Studios yeah Uber Studios so before you set that up you worked as a graphic designer in local companies in Jersey that's right Mm -hmm. yeah and when did you take on your first role as as a graphic designer oh yeah so (laughs) I started working in a in a local agency during when I was still sitting my A-level exams I was asking them I basically ended up in graphic design kind of by mistake. So to take you from the beginning, I loved the sound of the word graphic design and I thought, oh, this really, this sounds like me. I don't know what it is, but I really want to do this. And I went around saying to everyone, oh, I want to do graphic design. I want to do graphic design. And this was like pre-internet days. So it wasn't like I could Google it. I couldn't go on Instagram. That didn't exist. Yeah. There was none of this stuff. So you didn't, you didn't know what you didn't know back then. You know, it was really more challenging to kind of break into anything unusual. And a friend of mine's dad was a photographer and he offered to take me for a week during one of my school breaks. So I went along to meet this photographer and uh, he led me down into the design studio because it turned out he was the in-house photographer at a local design agency like a really big one so they sat me down in front of a mac and i was like no longer going to go out on a jolly doing all these photographs <laughs> i was sat there learning a program called quark express which doesn't exist anymore and like everybody was fascinated because photoshop had just got layers and it was like, you know i mean i sound like the old designers <laughs> that i used to meet back then now like oh i remember when we didn't have this and we had isdn and couldn't send a pdf it was all by fax and it's true that's so funny it was bizarre <laughs> it's really weird when I look back on it now to think I'm part of that change yeah yeah that now sounds alien if I talk about it and like people didn't even have websites for their businesses back then that's so crazy yeah I can't like even like imagine thing. that yeah they got a website designer at this company it was like it and they were gonna have to try and convince companies to get websites because they were still just doing brochures and print ads it was really really different I I got my first job at that same company I basically wrote them a letter asking for if they'd give me a job when I was still doing my A-level exams, a role came up and they offered it to me, basically. And I, yeah, I didn't know how to apply for a graphic design role, so I wrote them a letter. <laughs> Do you remember me? And they were like, absolutely, snapped me up, got me straight in. And I kind of went on from there. I worked there. And uh, and then I went on to work at um, Image, which I think is now called something else. And then I went to work with the IdeaWorks, so I think are still around. Mm-hmm. Um, I met my, yeah, I met my former business partner at the IdeaWorks, um, 
but yeah it was it was a great education I kind of moved between learning very technical graphic design skills from a very technical studio manager who brought me in all of his books from university to read and they sat me down with like cd-roms to learn learn how to do things on the computer and had a you know I had lots of um, time to kind of get to grips with the whole thing Um, and then I had to kind of take myself on my own journey and teach myself the kind of creative aspect because that's the bit that's much more difficult and that's the bit that never ends like you have to stay interested in trends and you have to stay up to date with what's going on and attending conferences and as my journey went on I kind of eventually realized that I wasn't just talking to people about the design that they needed anymore or what the content for the next brochure was going to be I was talking to them about their real business challenges and I was talking to them about the psychology of their customers and how that might impact what we said or where we said it or which media it was in or what color would represent them and I realized that we were we weren't just doing design we were doing strategy and I became really kind of interested in trends and behavioral science um as well as as well as the kind of creative advertising solutions to those challenges mm-hmm. so I've you know spent a lot of time regularly going to trend forecasts and that's that's where I started to find myself going to like I want to be at the place where my where my clients go to learn about their industry and what's happening next so mm-hmm. that I can actually be informed and tell them what they need to know ahead of when they already know it. I think um, the key resource when I was younger was probably Creative Review. It's Uh a really, really um, famous, important creative publication. And it was always in the studios where I was. And it's in the studios where I am now. For anyone who's kind of ever stuck creatively or wanting to see, you know, what are the best creative minds doing right now, it's one of the best places to start and one of the best places to search for ideas and inspiration. So that's Creative Review has always been a part of my background education. Um, and is and that like a magazine or it's like a magazine? It's a magazine. Yeah, yeah. It's a web. It's a web publication now okay. as well, but they still print it. Mm-hmm. I think they pulled the print for a while, but then they brought it back. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. There's something about a magazine. Like I always have a really huge pinboard where I've kind of cut out and collated and and um, curated a collection of things that I just love. And it might be like a phrase. Like I saw one the other day that said demographics be damned and there was another series of a guy who was painting sunsets on the front of the New York Post during lockdown I went you know sometimes I go through old piles of things and like even at home I have lots of little creative booklets that used to come as with um, creative review and they're called monogram and every now and then I get them out and they're like 20 years old and you go through those and that's a gold mine because actually more often than not trends reflect what was happening around 20 25 years ago now the thing about trends reflecting what was fashionable 20 odd years ago is that I think that that cycle of trend is actually speeding up and happening much quicker so we've kind of seen 80s 90s noughties and we keep going in these weird loops now yeah. and I, th- I think that the reason why certain trends come around is it's when you get people who are 16 to 18 years old who start to get nostalgic and um, they tend to bring in whatever was the big trend when they were really little comes into fashion again and I think that because we actually have this new phenomenon where these people were also grown with the internet now we have this like much quicker turnover of trends where things are happening much more rapidly and they're not lasting like they were yet i feel like today more than ever you can essentially be who you know represent whatever era you want to represent and it's it's really interesting seeing how old ideas get mixed with new technology and new takes on that because they're never quite identical there's always something that represents a shift but where we've seen so many changes in technology where is that going to go next you know we're at a point where we might see this exponential increase in computing power coming with quantum computers mm-hmm. so you know how is that going to impact what things look like is is there an end to how glazed things start to look because mm-hmm. of the 
you know, how ultra high res we can make them. I don't know the answer, but it's really, it's really exciting. And how much of a pushback into analogue are we going to see as a result? Because there's always going to be a kickback in the opposite direction as well. There's mm-hmm. always going to be people craving to get off off the computers and away from technology and make things by hand so Mm -hmm. I think it's really good to have a hand in both of those things as well I'd say the majority is still on the computer for Mm -hmm. sure but I definitely really value and still do analogue creative stuff myself so I learned to screen print um, after I moved to London and found myself in a workspace that offered uh, free screen printing facilities Mm -hmm. and was doing a lot of kind of collaborations with charities like Choose Loves and and asking would you submit some prints and so on so I learned how to screen print because I really wanted to get involved in that kind of thing and then I found myself kind of getting mixed up with street artists and learning how to spray paint and spray painting huge containers so I really wanted a big advertising opportunity and there was a massive shipping container like two piled up on top of each other right outside my workspace which has a really really high footfall so I replied for permission to uh to basically go up and spray a massive message onto one of them which just said be a nice human and it looked it looked gorgeous and it was actually a response to some of the negativity and bullying that had been happening in the media. How has your upbringing in Jersey influenced your approach to business and to design? I think growing up here, you grow up with the most profound amount of respect for the environment and for the sea. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's, the schools make it a big thing and you can't avoid it. It's, you know, it's such a huge part of what makes Jersey one of the most special places to live. Um, And I was really, really fortunate to have, um, you know, a dad that had really, really strong environmental values growing up. And he, you know, really instilled those in me. Um, I'm sure he won't mind me saying he was 100% a genuine hippie, (laughs) you know, who then, you know, in the 70s, who then ended up in finance and ended up with a family and, you know, but uh, he never lost those kind of key values. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I was really fortunate when I worked in Jersey that I was... um, I was given the recycling department as one of my key clients when I worked for the Idea Works, um, and um, through working with the different people in charge of those those communications campaigns, um, they were really really into if we're going to do something, we need to show that we're we're kind of walking the walk, not just talking the talk. Yeah. So they were the ones who instilled in me we need to learn about recycled materials we need to learn about using sustainably created inks that are made from vegetables instead of chemicals we need to ensure the paper is at the very least fsc accredited so it's you know renewed renewed forests for paper rather than the the alternative um and that really got me started in in like learning about all of that stuff um and it's something that then just became a bit of an obsession for me because it was almost like a competition like well you know we want to create these we want to create these promotional items, but how can we do it without using a harmful material? So finding things made from recycled CDs when people used to have CDs. <laughs> or, um, yeah, just uh, looking for innovative materials like paper that's made from recycled um, fashion waste. So you can get stuff like that now and you yeah. can get really amazing plastics that are actually made from plants and will decompose. So that's a really suitable um, swap for certain types of packaging needs. Mm-hmm. Um, so it just became something that I was really, really interested in and wanted to continue. And I found the more I did it, the more my, my clients were asking for it anyway and becoming really, really conscious. And it's almost like the more you focus on something, the more of it you're going to get. So you just naturally start attracting people who are, are kind of thinking along the same lines and wanting to do similar things. And just going back to you know your passion for design as a whole, 
role you mentioned while at school you didn't really know exactly what a graphic designer was but you were sort of attracted to the idea I wonder if you could explain a bit more about that or maybe share one of your core memories or core experiences that shaped your passion for design at an early age my my art teacher at A level was Pat Robson and she said to me a few years after I left school oh it was always obvious that you were going to be a graphic designer Katie and I was like really that's amazing but I think you know when uh, I was really unfortunate when I did my A levels because I decided to do maths physics and art which was like a ridiculous combination (laughs) they couldn't fit the timetable I couldn't go to any careers lessons anyway Mm -hmm. and to be honest I'm I know I'm quite I'm no I'm fairly stubborn person and I always thought I wanted to be a teacher because my mum was a teacher mm-hmm. and then when I was studying doing my project Trident where you get to go for work experience at 15 years old um, I decided well I know I want to be a teacher so why don't I look at something different because I my mum was a teacher so I'd spent enough time doing teaching practice with her <laughs> so I just I put down every single possible media company in Jersey because my my grandfather was one of the original founders of Channel Television mm-hmm. and I'd always had a bit of a kind of fascination with TV and media. I got turned down from every single one that I put myself forward for. So like Channel TV, the radio station, everyone turned me down. Pretty much across the road from where we are now, maybe even in the same block, I was in RBSI mm-hmm. doing data entry. I was actually yeah, surrounded by I was surrounded by a team of absolutely fantastically funny um, individuals, a couple of them were gay guys, and I had an absolute scream for like my three weeks in data entry. Um, yeah, That's so funny. And, and honestly, after that, I was like, I do not want to work with children. I want to be in an office. I want to have banter mm-hmm. and I want to have fun. And then I just became even more focused on this graphic design idea. Mm-hmm. And and that was how I ended up thinking I'm going out with going to help a photographer and ending up in a design studio mm-hmm. and discovering what it really was firsthand. Oh, but amazing. Honestly, Quite a journey into it. So lucky, but I think, yeah. I mean, I think it, that's ridiculous, really. It shouldn't have been that difficult, but also <laughs> um, so lucky. And, and that's why I get a lot of a lot of students asking for assistance and I'm a mentor on, on a, a platform called The Dots Now. Mm-hmm. And I, I really make a point of trying to help people trying to get their foot in the door because mm-hmm. like it's almost like I fell down a mountain and landed in the studio. I was so lucky. Um, but that doesn't happen. And there are so many people who are trying their hardest to, you know, it's a very difficult industry to get a break into. So mm-hmm. I'm always kind of willing to pay that forward and talk to people when they ask for advice and, you know, what can I do? And even mm-hmm. if anything I can think of, I'll be like, here you go, go and look at this or whatever. And so do you have like, quite a few people messaging you asking you for your advice or or support yeah quite often and then you you know you get the occasional people who are you know they try to like send in your cv send in the cv and ask if you have any jobs and stuff and it can be quite heart-wrenching um you know because yeah. I'm I'm a big empath and I really care and I want to help everyone uh-huh. and it's like sometimes you've got to help yourself but yeah but yeah um you get you get a lot of people ask but there's I found now there's like a few good places where I can refer people if I can't help. And I have quite a lot of uh, big networks of people. So um, there's quite a lot of people that I can say, has anyone heard of something coming up in this? And, you know, sometimes I get asked questions and I'm just like completely outside of what I'm doing. But there's always somewhere I can say, well, I think you should look here or you should talk to this yeah. person. And What would you say, what is it about design that you find most fulfilling and most engaging? It's it's definitely solving the problem Mm -hmm. yeah I actually I kind of quite like looking for sometimes the problem they didn't know that they had (laughs) and and saying oh there's there's this big elephant in the room and I I really want to go after that one rather than just you know being asked I need a solution to this like I I like to challenge and I like to have that back and forth 
And I think um, the best solutions usually come when there's been a pushback and you've had to reassess what you're thinking and, and then find the way forward. So, yeah, probably finding the challenge. But also my favourite thing also, just when something looks absolutely gorgeous and I've got, like, my favourite typeface on it mm-hmm. and they sign off the typeface that I ask them to choose, that's actually, like, a NASA moment for me because <laughs> I'm, so, I'm so pleased when it also looks amazing. Yeah. You know, and there's a lot of reasoning and care and nuance gone into the the, the suggestions that I've made mm-hmm. um, because I know that it's going to really work mm-hmm. um, but yeah that's also a nice moment but I think I'm very much the kind of ideas it's the idea that's the most important aspect mm-hmm. and then making it look beautiful is like the cherry on top or the glitter <laughs> <laughs> um, so both of those points lead in quite nicely to your campaign for Channel Islands Pride in 2022 and 2023 was it? That's yeah, right perfect. yeah um, so you sort of identified a problem with Pride about the way it was being perceived and about the way it was being handled by different companies and then you created this amazing campaign that sort of addressed these problems and also was very beautiful and aesthetically pleasing as well. Um, so yeah, I was hoping you could tell me a bit more about the whole Pride campaign. Yeah, so it started in 2022. Well, I guess it kind of started in 2021 when mm-hmm. Ellie and Ellie, who is the CEO of Liberate, came to talk to me about we're going to have a big, we're going to have a special Pride next year because it's the 50th anniversary. Mm-hmm. And up until that point. They'd always just got me involved. I'd been involved for the previous five years and I'd always just kind of put new outfits on the donkey and the toad. I didn't draw the toad originally, that was someone else, but I drew the donkey corn for them and then they always wanted me to update the characters and update the flyer. And I kind of looked at everything that I knew was wrong with the Pride movement and what was happening, you know, as I said earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, I looked at it as a whole and the fact that we had the 50th coming up and I started to research the history of where the movement had been in 1972. There's uh, so many people who would say, oh, I support Pride and I... I, you know, I support people loving whoever they love and being allowed to marry and have relationships. However, you know, people weren't really viewing it as important to come out and join in the celebration to physically show their support. Yeah. And when you don't, when you don't turn up to show your support for like just one day a year, that it enables the more kind of extreme, like regressive attitudes to feel emboldened and you know they can take a they can kind of start to think you know that they're right and start influencing things because there's not a loud enough group of people yeah. shouting mm-hmm. it's like the same with black lives matter where it was like we all have to stand up and say black lives matter it's not just a case for black people anymore everyone mm-hmm. else has to show that they support the movement otherwise mm-hmm. it's it's not going to gain the attention and and support that's needed in order to actually make change because the changes are systemic in some cases, you know. Yeah. And we were having, in in um, 2022, we still had conversion therapy was still being allowed on trans people and still is. Yes. So, you know, it was put through government that you weren't allowed to electroshock people for being gay anymore, but you could still do it to someone who's trans. That, mm-hmm. Well, that's how extreme it can be, but that's still in our law, mm-hmm. you know, and that's still something that the community is fighting against yeah. that people aren't aware of and... Mm-hmm. And, you know, at the same time, they're being used as a scapegoat for headlines when there are far bigger, you know, issues happening. And, and I'll never forget going to the first Jersey Pride 
that was in like 2014 or 2015 over mm-hmm. here. I went along to that. I didn't know them at the time. And I remember seeing Christian May um, visibly weeping on the stage by the amount of people that had come out to support them for the first Pride. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh my gosh, I know him from school. <laughs> I recognised him. And I thought, oh, I didn't realise he was gay, you know. <laughs> but it was like, I was so moved yeah. because I didn't know how many people would have supported the movement and mm-hmm. I was so moved to see him moved and you know when you're like this yeah. is why it matters because otherwise people like live their lives and grow up thinking that they're alone and they should be ashamed and do they have to look over their shoulder because they might be attacked on the way home and it's a reality and you know and people do make comments to you know people like openly in the street it does still go on mm-hmm. it's just you know it's just not something that people talk about as much but it is still a problem mm-hmm. I wonder if you could tell me a bit about rainbow washing and the way that the way that Pride's been adopted by some companies just to sort of tick a box. I mean, I think that because it is a big, bold, bright, fun celebration, mm-hmm. corporates really want to be a part of it. Mm-hmm. And it, you know, ticks a big equality, diversity, inclusion box yeah. for them on their CSR calendar. So they love it. But, you know, it's, it's definitely an issue that... Um, corporations are using it as an excuse to get t-shirts printed and march in parades and in the UK um, the public aren't allowed to join the parades anymore because they're filled with corporate sponsors and you know we need corporate sponsors because pride is a free event and we want to keep it free so their sponsorship is really important but at the same time unless they are actually turning up and volunteering and helping you know helping with the cleanup helping put the festival up and down or you know carrying carrying flags and stuff then it's it's you know it's still very performative issue, mm-hmm. um, and it detracts from the message because public don't want to turn up to an event and feel like they've been advertised at all day. And in fact, there's one of the sponsors of Jersey Pride. They specifically request not to put their logo on and everything. And it's not because it's because they don't want to be a part of the kind of that rainbow washing thing. Yeah, and I yeah. think that's really amazing. That yeah, that is. Yeah. They want to sponsor it, but they're like, we don't want you to plaster us everywhere. So yeah. It's interesting, you know, I think that it's a difficult one and it's a really challenging line for for them to to, to walk, but it had just become a little bit OTT and with, mm-hmm. you know, the community itself knows which brands are just putting a rainbow on something and then doing nothing. And, and yeah, it's, it's, it's a difficult one because we really, mm-hmm. they really, really need the sponsorship. But at the same time, there's now more of an onus on sponsors actually putting on um, in-house training as well yeah you know to show that they are actually doing more than just turning up on the day mm-hmm. so there's been there's definitely been a huge shift and and that's come from within as well as like pride realizing that it needs to ask for that as mm-hmm. well and realizing that they want to be a part of it so it's got to work two ways that's really good there's been sort of some progress in yeah. that regard um with the 2022 pride that was the 50th anniversary that's right yeah um yeah. what were your sort of key goals for the campaign what did you want to achieve through your campaign and what issues did you want to address we really wanted to raise awareness of how far the movement had come from 1972 Mm -hmm. Um, and we wanted more people to kind of learn their gay history Mm -hmm. and um so one of the things we did, we took the rainbow away because it wasn't invented till 1978 Mm -hmm. um, and only introduced it later. We really just wanted to get more people to come out and support the community. At the time in Guernsey, they were trying to get some legislation passed for um, for their um, new Equality Act. So actually, we used um, the opportunity to have some politicians speak on the stage about the legislation that they were trying to get passed and um, to try and prevent that from being watered down. 
um, and we did a lot of kind of one-on-one kind of talking with people and yeah luckily they also organized a picket for the next week outside the government and they did pass the law um, how it needed to be because some people were trying to water it down and take some things out that were important it was more we got um, the attendance at Guernsey Pride that year was increased by 20% which is actually fant- phenomenal yeah. when you think that surely there's many people that want to go will already be going back to, so to get 20% more to turn up was fantastic yeah, and amazing. that campaign had something like 86 it had a reach of 86 million um in the end that was with uh, orchard pr mm-hmm. helping to run the pr for that the most important thing for me was one of the one of the kind of committee or um organizers he came up to me he said to me at one of the after parties that they finally had like a thread that had brought them all together for pride and it felt like a really significant change and a really significant shift for them like they all understood more about why this was, you know, why mm-hmm. they were there and what it was all about. And they had like a rallying cry and, you know, mm-hmm. the T-shirt, they all had T-shirts on with all the different slogans that were actually taken from the original placards in the ni- in 1972. Um, That's so and cool. And we'd written things like <laughs> gay is good in this really psychedelic wobbly lettering. Yeah, yeah. Um, which was the fashion at the time, but also it meant that you could put the word gay like really massive. And if somebody was anti-gay they'd have to spend a few seconds trying to read what it said before they knew what they'd said so we were trying to get it right into everyone's faces as politely but as loudly as we could so it was a lot of fun yeah (laughs) for sure and then in 2023 you did the jersey campaign that's right right? yeah Yeah, perfect and what were your what was your campaign idea 2023 was um we obviously we didn't want to repeat all the 1970s brand stuff Mm -hmm. so we we set about creating a brand style that would um have more longevity in it so that we wouldn't redesign it every year because that's not very sustainable Mm -hmm. uh, for a charity um so we looked at where, where what are we not addressing what are we missing here you know we've done all this work we want to keep that fighting spirit going but who you know what are the challenges? And I'd been to um, a trend forecasting session with the IPA, the Institute of Practitioners in Advertising, and one of the big themes that was coming out in 2023 was people didn't, people were kind of turning their backs on these highly polished, fake images of themselves on social media and wanted to be authentically themselves. And we talked about making it all about celebrating your true, authentic self and how pride is a place where people can come together and really celebrate who they are and not be afraid to have to live up to anything or hide behind a mask for the day so um it was um christian may and vic i worked with on on that and they were they were really really behind it and um they really wanted to create a campaign that would bring together um people from all different minority backgrounds in the community in jersey so they wanted to make a point that in jersey pride isn't just about um, the cis gay guys that you see typically plastered as the poster boys and it's not just about drag queens mm-hmm. it's a pride for everybody in the community and that's um, older people um, people from uh, people who might have disabilities people from the black community um, and anyone who's like lesbian gay transgender bisexual um, we had some trans masculine models in our campaign and we had a proud parent and we even had an um, allies from Salvation Army in the campaign. So we had like every single kind of possible minority we could have we had in our campaign. And um, it was shot by photographer Nikki Kill, who was fantastic and is also part of the community and had been helping capture pride for several years. Um, and it was just um, 
you know, I'm, I can't believe how brave our models were, to be honest, mm-hmm. because to, to, you know, we approached them all and, and some of them took a little bit of convincing because we were like, we want to take a really powerful, you know, unapologetic, you know, proud photograph of you, but we're going to plaster you all over... <laughs> all over Jersey you know for for a month or two is that okay and and, you know this is your kind of coming out moment so this is your defiant I'm here I'm proud I don't care what you think kind Mm -hmm. of thing um and it was you know few people needed a little bit of coaching and some people were like all for it one of our models Sam um he was amazing he did his first shoot which was brilliant down at Wayne Bay and then he came back to Nikki and said, you know, he's transmasculine. And he said, he'd said, um, one of the most challenging things for me is to be in my swimwear and, you know, actually show my body. So he wanted to do a shoot swimming within his swimwear. So Nikki mm-hmm. went down the beach with him again and got these incredible shots of him, you know, running into the sea and then coming out. And, you know, just it looked it looked so cool. And it was so hard to narrow down which shot we should be using. Yeah. And I was just so moved. And they all sent in a story and a reason why they were doing it. And, you know, the local black community had had a really, really difficult, um, challenging year that year. And oh, Lina, yeah. who founded Friends of Africa, she mm-hmm. came out and posed in King Street in her African dress. And she just looked like Beyonce. Like, she looked like, like a like a pop star it's amazing it's my favorite photograph that's amazing um, and like i'm just so proud of her for coming out because i you know knew what knew some of the mm-hmm. the local community and i knew what had happened mm-hmm. and um for her to come out and say i'm i'm proud to wear my melanin crown crown and i'm proud that i'm here mm-hmm. and i will never let anyone diminish who i am just because of the color of my skin you don't think these things happen in Jersey but they do mm-hmm. and actually we need to all recognize that and support people regardless of whether we've seen it or not mm-hmm. just be more conscious of what other people may be going through and what do you think the benefits for the community were of having such an inclusive campaign that sort of addressed all different aspects of like the queer spectrum and included you know all sorts of different allies what are the benefits of that well on the day the benefits were really obvious because I met so many people at Pride who had never been to Pride before Mm -hmm. and here they all are meeting different people from outside their echo chamber, their bubble, Mm -hmm. you know, getting to know one another, um, having a lovely drink in the sun, enjoying some, you know, great music and just coming together and creating a real sense of community and love on the island. Mm -hmm. And I've certainly heard feedback from some of the acts that have played at Pride, like Woody Cook. I met him in the airport and had a good chat with him and, and he was like, it's the most this is one of the loveliest prides like he's ever been to and you know he was like I'm desperate to come back again and you know they just love being here because they said that the like what we have is really special and I went around quite a lot of different prides in the UK um kind of flyering and talking about pride and just because I would go anyway because mm-hmm. I love it <laughs> and um and honestly I could put my hand on my heart and say that like Jersey Pride last year was by far the best pride that I've been to just in terms of community atmosphere, mm-hmm. um, seeing all the different kind of, because there's so many different charities there talking about what they're doing. So you have an opportunity to find help or see something that you can recommend to someone else. So it does, it's more than just a party. There's like a whole kind of backbone of Jersey there mm-hmm. and so many wonderful support services and people that you can just meet on the day. No, it's great to hear there's such like a supportive environment surrounding it. Um, and you've got plans to do the 2024 campaign as well yeah which is amazing news so I'm looking (laughs) forward to seeing what you what you do for that one um 
You mentioned earlier that you tried to make the campaign sustainable in the sense that you could sort of reuse the different products year after year. Um, If you could tell me a little bit more about how you made that environmentally friendly. Yeah, so because I had been at a few climate conferences in the UK, I'd actually met um, some businesses that specialised in creating more sustainable products for events. Mm -hmm. So we went to them and, and it was a big, big high on the agenda for for um, Liberate to do the same thing. So we went to them and said, right, we're going to need stage backdrops. We want to have awnings for around the park. You know, we want to we want to produce some kind of covers for the PA systems. What materials can we use that are going to be more sustainable? And sometimes it's not always about switching to the most sustainable material, but it's about switching to something that has a much longer shelf life mm-hmm. and doing things like not putting the date on things so that we can put them up and take them down year after year and creating graphics that... Um, last for a really long time so like the backdrop says um, Channel Islands Pride on it and it has the two key um, characters on there but there's no date so that means that every year if we can pr- pull that out yeah, we won't have yeah. to print a new one and throw it away and it's made on a uh, shipping sale material so it's easy to fold up and put away and mm-hmm. get back out again without yeah. big crinkles in it and yeah <laughs> it's not going to crack or anything when it's in storage amazing um well thank you so much i really enjoyed hearing about everything especially your work with pride i just think it sounds like really cool and all the different ideas that went into it thank you very much lovely to be here <laughs> listening to this episode of Bailiwick Podcasts. I hope you enjoyed hearing about Casey's journey from discovering graphic design to becoming one of the UK's top 100 female entrepreneurs. From her work with charities and in revitalising pride events to advocating for genuine environmental responsibility, Katie's commitment to using design as a tool for positive change is truly inspiring.